Welcome to the Donmar on Design podcast series. I'm David Jays and this is our opportunity to talk in depth with some of the UK's leading theatre designers. Donmar on Design is a festival celebrating the power of design in theatre and the designers who make it happen. Right. <laughs> so, welcome to the Design Festival podcast Thank at you. the Donmar. Um, I'm David Jays, and I'm here with the marvellous designer, Lizzie Clachan, um, in the Don Mars Music Room. But we don't have to imagine that we're in the Don Mars Music Room. We could imagine that we're lying back on cushions, that we're gazing up at the most sublime, shifting, exciting planetarium sky, that there are big tunes from the Chemical Brothers playing, that a huge, bearish, energetic man is hurtling round and round and round um, around us on a circular walkway because um, we could be looking at the immensity of the planets and being in the life of Galileo, which you designed um, earlier this year. And if we could imagine that for a minute, I would be in a very happy place indeed, because it was just a joyous environment to be in. So that's what I'm carrying with me (laughs) at the minute. (laughs) Um, So that's in my head. Lizzie, what is in your head? at the minute I, what are you working on what are you looking at what have you just seen that's what, what's your kind of mind um, mood board well I've just come from a meeting um with this extraordinary fashion designer stylist artist called Daniel Lismore with, who I hopefully am collaborating on a project with um on an opera in a couple of years and um, so I've just had this extraordinary meeting with this, this amazing-looking man showing me his incredible book full of his artistic creations. So I'm feeling slightly like, oh, my God. <laughs> what an amazing artist you are. Um, and what sort of thing, what, what kind of amazing creations are we talking about? Um, just he uses his body, as his, uh, his own body and clothes as a sort of sculptural painter's palette and he creates this layers and layers of sort of baroque meets Maasai warrior meets sort of exotic balls and trinkets with a Lady Diana motif. I mean just like a complete sort of juxtaposition of craziness, bonkers brilliance um, on on the body and uh, and it was just so extraordinary to just look through this book with him and talk to him about uh, his ideas and how he works, and uh, he's. We just had this great conversation about uh, lucid dreaming, which he does to to design. He oh, he wow. designs while lucid dreaming, and um, I was very interested in that because I sort of I sort of think that I design best when I'm in the bath <laughs> or just before I go to sleep at night. But I've never been able to train myself to to right. do this lucid dreaming. But he he sort of. Goes, makes himself go to sleep with a pencil and a pad in his hand and then he he wakes himself up and draws just at that moment. Oh. So that's what I've so I've been having this incredibly that's interesting fantastic. creative conversation with this uh this rather special person. <laughs> and then I've just um at the moment I'm out in Basel in Switzerland working with um Daniel Kramer on an on an opera La Traviata um for the Basel Opera, 
which is is really good fun and another kind of crazy concoction of different things. Um, <laughs> and big scale, so operas are, you know, to say something blindingly obvious, they're big stuff. Lots of people. Lots of Entire people. Entire choruses. Chorus of 50, big spaces, three acts, needs very different solutions. Um, the Germans have a very, the German speaking world, I should say, has a very different working method from how we would have here. Um, but this opera also is, is co-production with ENO. So it's going to come here, so it has to sort of fit into one space and fit into another space. It has to fit with one, one working method, then go into another working method. So it's quite sort of politically complicated, um, but, but enormous fun. And uh, yeah, very large scale. Um, and I love the fact that just in those two bits of, of, of projects that you're, you're initiating, we've gone from lucid dreaming, plumb line into the subconscious, to some quite complicated nitty-gritty of where a set will fit and, and the number of people involved. And, and did the two sides of your brain enjoy playing with those two different sorts of I do. Problems? I think that's, that's exactly the nub of it, actually. <laughs> and in fact, I've just, because I've just been having this conversation with this, my amazing Daniel Lismore about, as an artist, you know, he's, he just creates what he wants to create. Whereas I always have to have this sort of pragmatic element another pragmatic side to the whole thing where i'm thinking okay um is it going to be too much money um will they be able to make it on time will that workshop be able to do this kind of thing will they do it properly um can all the audience see what about the people from the left will they be able to see what's like a hundred percent sight line what's the 70 percent sight line you know what can i say to the director you've got to work in this triangle if you want to see you know it's if there's a there's just a thousand pragmatic elements that I have to There will be theatre-goers, I hope, listening to this and punching the air with joy, knowing that there's a designer who cares about what you can see from I the do. cheap seats. I do really care, actually. I, mean, I find it really... Um, when I watch previews, and I and if I know there are some bad seats, and there, I know there always are a couple of bad seats, I mean, that, especially in particular theatres, yeah. I just find it really cringy. I can't help I spend the whole time just watching the group of people who I know are in a bad seat and I just look to see if they're sort of looking annoyed and whether I've ruined the evening for Or sitting them. in really uncomfortable positions, sitting, craning, yeah, necks. craning their necks, looking <laughs> perturbed. They've yeah. paid money for a rubbish seat. And I feel I feel the pain. I, 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 don't, I don't want that. You know, I kind of... Um, I don't think that everyone needs to see everything and I mm. often create environments where... Um, if you're one side of the auditorium, you might see a wonderful view of that over there and that pe- person coming in there. You might see a private, intimate moment over there that people on the right-hand side of the auditorium would never see. Yes. But I do believe in a sort of overall democracy. I feel very, very clear for me that it's very important in the theatre that there's a sort of democracy amongst for the audience of what they can see. And I don't mind if that's a sort of democracy of shit democracy of, of rubbish sometimes or democracy of whatever but I but it's uh, I feel that there needs to be I, I would I would feel very uncomfortable as a designer if I was making theatre that that uh, that only some people would have a good view on yes and you know we're talking going out to Galileo and there's endless you know there the were some dodgy seats in Galileo you know <laughs> and there's endless toing and froing going backwards and forwards with Daisy the producer at the at the uh, Young Vic and David and with Joe, the director, and myself, and just, just 
you know, trying to make sure that we had the, the best possible um, view of, for the performance. As and uh, presumably for any play, there are moments that just have to hit for everybody. Exactly. Uh, pieces of vital information that everyone has to get. Exactly. The 100% triangles. I mean, I so, like I work with a lot with Katie Mitchell, and so, so notoriously we were forever doing with Katie rooms with side rooms and up double stories and stuff. But she's... She's very good. She knows that that you know I'll give her the triangles, and she knows that those are her one hundred percent triangles. Right. And that when something needs to hit, then you need to be in that triangle. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult. It's a difficult thing because, you know, yes, you need key information that everyone can see, but there's a, there's a sort of psychological cut off. If you're in the audience and you feel that you're not getting what other people are getting, that at some point psychologically you're going to start to feel a bit pissed off about that. So it's just for my job. I was honestly is just trying to work out what that line is. Yes, stay on the right side of it. Yes, the hundred percent triangle. I like that <laughs> that concept. Um, a key piece of stuff that um, I haven't done is introduce you properly. So halfway through the conversation, let's just um, celebrate. Um, we've already mentioned it. You know, a few of the the, the sorts of um, projects you work on, but just that, that fantastic wraparound sensibility you seem to have. Very rigorous, but also very atmospheric. Um, and uh, people may know about your, have seen your work with Katie Mitchell, they may have seen some of the, the um, exciting stuff you've done at the Young Vic very recently, they may have um, seen the amazing stuff you began with at the Shunt, with the Shunt Collective, which um, I suspect we'll be talking about um, in a bit. Um, and what we've asked you to do is bring in three images or objects from different stages of life, something that that connects to um, a project that you worked on, something a cherished souvenir from that, um, a picture of a place or a building or a landscape, something that will ignite the power of place, but also something from childhood or youth that might just give us a clue of how you came into to this world and um, well what do we have well I'll start off with a thing from my youth do, well let's I, do youth first well I brought in I brought in a, a drawing which I did at art college and I was at art college I did a fine art degree at uh, Edinburgh Art College um, between 1990 1994 it's a long time ago <laughs> but um, I like it it's very it's very spare um, it's the only. It's I only have like two bits of work from from that time, which I still have in my house, and this is one of them. This is this. There's, I've taken it out of its frame. It's all a bit faded, or it's. I can now know it's. There's a darker faded. red a darker <laughs> fringe around, around it because it's been it's been in a frame. It lives in my kitchen. It's called Breakfast Treat, and I think that the reason I sort of I was quite interested in this, what to bring in here because. I think I went to Edinburgh Art College and I'd studied, um, I studied, I kind of messed around a little bit of fashion, did costume, and then I went to the fine art department. Um, and Edinburgh Art College was very, um, very male at the time, <laughs> very male. And it was very much, it had a tradition of Scottish landscape painting. It was mm. very, very particular, kind of big, semi-abstract, earthy, dark, sort of quite sort of 
broad stroked <laughs> abstract very kind of quite a male environment all my teachers were male um i i feel like i was never quite forgiven for having come from the design department into the fine art department i was not really taken seriously for oh, that really you were an interloper definitely an interloper and um and i you know I, I think i sort of right from the beginning i sort of felt a bit irked by this tradition and um and I started to create lots of sort of drawings which were about just about little moments, little moments. And I, and I realised I loved this little, I love this little moment. It's a very, it's actually, I can't remember exactly the, the, who this was, but Wilkinson was a murderer. He did something terrible. He like, oh. he like stabbed some children or something. And there was this wonderful sort of bit in the local paper which literally had this photograph, and, and the caption was, Wilkerson makes tea as Anne-Marie, which was his sister, opens biscuits. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, I just thought, what a wonderful what a wonderful moment that's, like, frozen in time. And, you know, there's so much tragedy and drama surrounding this little, this little tiny mundane encapsulation of yeah. this, this family gone wrong. And we should say that... Um, the, the the little caption, Wilkinson makes tea as Anne-Marie opens biscuits, is printed across a, a drawing of two figures. It's two figures, uh, it's two figures, and they're very sort of sketchy, and they, they convey to me a lot, you know, there's, there's some, the, the sister is a sort of great big lumbering woman, uh-huh. and the, the, the brother looks like he he's maybe not all there. and But looking out at us with quite dark eyes looking out and you know and and i've made the wilkinson makes tears and remakes is done in letter set which oh, is to those people set. of a certain age will remember the glory of letter set and this is you know one of the last the last moments of letter set <laughs> i kept the letter set when everybody else was throwing their letter set away i was i kept the one's letter set and i was still using letter set still using letter set for years and years because i just thought it, this, it, the quality of how you can make text on a page mm. has a sort of personal, a personal sort of artistic quality that printed word doesn't always yeah. have. And and you can kind of feel the hand behind. I can the, feel the, the hand letters, behind it. So I sort of thought, well, this was interesting because, um, you know, I still like I'm one of those designers who needs to get paper plans because right. I need to work on paper. I don't work on CAD. And I need to work on paper because when I draw, even if I'm drawing technical drawing, mm. I sort of need to feel that I'm experiencing space um, and in 3D and imaginative space whilst I'm drawing very technical things. I need to do that for myself mm-hmm. in order to understand the spaces I'm working within. And I've read, I think, I've read you saying something like, I never went to the theatre during the years of my fine art. Yeah, no, I never. No one did. No one went to theatre. Was that really not considered? It was. It was proper. Very well. I would say there were utterly different worlds. Like I would, there was no crossover. I think once in four years, once someone came and did waiting for Godot in the sculpture hall at Edinburgh, and that was. I mean, that was a sort of the only time I can ever record any kind of crossover. There wasn't even a performance Mm. art um, element, and um, and. The theatre was just regarded as, as something. <laughs> I mean, it's all nonsense, of course. It's all nonsense, but that and was the environment. Spoken... That, that was the environment I, I sort of had yeah. my education in. And so coming to theatre eventually mm. was um, 
it's quite a slow, slow process. And if I'd spoken to you then, would you have been with your your sights were set on a career as a as a fine artist, yes. as a visual artist? Completely, right? Completely. But you know, I mean, this is the thing. I look back at all that work then. I was always wanting people to press things and go go there and look at that there. Mm. I was always wanting the audience to participate somehow in the work, right? Um, which probably was a clue that <laughs> I wasn't really going to be an artist in a way that I thought I was going to be. And I think, you know, recently I've been really wrestling. It's going to turn into a therapy session. Perfect. I've been really wrestling for a couple of years, actually, with what in my mid, I guess a mid-career crisis. Yeah. About, you know, what am I? What am I? Because I always was going to be an artist. Mm. And, you know, I'm a theatre designer and of course what I do is incredibly artistic. But it's a, it's a different process. Mm. You know, and I, I feel, I've always felt this real tension and struggle for myself between the idea of being an artist and being a designer. Yeah. And, um, and I've been talking about it a lot with my, with my friends and, you know, and uh, fellow, fellow artists, collaborators. And uh, I kind of realised that I, I've, I wanted to redefine myself a little bit uh, as a storyteller. And I think that this is this is a new term I, that I feel very comfortable with. That actually, all this time I've been a storyteller, and when I was an, at art school, and all the kind of to all the segue into where I'm up to now, the one thing that's probably been the common feature of my work is that I'm a storyteller, and it doesn't matter whether I'm a, an artist or a designer. That actually, so so for me, it's a kind of personal thing. But so when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, here we are. You know, already I can see. It's you know, totally I've, a story. I've, reject, isn't it? I've rejected the great landscape yeah. um, Scottish tradition of painting, and I'm already interested in a story that I can't quite. I'm not going to reveal on the page, yeah. but that, that there's something there. And um, I'm very interested in the drama mm. um, and the mundanity and the banality of the, the, these things all sit together. Yeah, I like that. So storytelling, it's interesting because that's one of the things, of course, design has to do. We often think about it in terms of the ideas of a piece or the, uh, the atmosphere of a piece, but it also has to tell that story, whether sometimes as the primary way of telling that story, other, at other points in, in an evening, um, just enabling other elements of the production exactly, to do that. Exactly, and I mean storyteller in the widest possible sense. Mm. So, you know, so I've also been reading that extraordinary book, Sapiens, which I think oh, everyone yeah. has, has read, which, um, you know, just about sort of civilization and, you know, the beginning of culture and that we're all, that as humans, we're storytellers and that there's some sort of creative urge and that makes us human as storytellers. And that I sort of really like seeing the kind of culture through that prism and and it's a great link then between visual arts and music and theatre and literature and uh, that it's all storytelling and you know sometimes they're literal very literal stories and sometimes they're very sort of abstract or difficult stories Mm -hmm. sometimes they're stories that we can't decipher at all and and uh you know, and it's very complicated and difficult for the audience. So I mean, so I mean it in the in the, in a very mm. broad sense of the word that that I'm part of that, that I'm I'm part of the tradition of storytelling, mm. and um, and and how I take that forward is is in the theatre. And I think the next object you brought in, the next image you brought in, is 
about your break, <laughs> break out of the, the fine art world and into the theatre. Exactly. So I bought in, I haven't bought in an object here, like I haven't bought in a model piece, mm. because actually when I first started, I didn't make any models. You know, I didn't come from, I didn't do a theatre course in the yeah. same way that other people didn't, it wasn't ever assistant or anything like that. Um, I, I just, um, we just started making work. I met mm. with my nine other collaborators. We called ourselves Shunt. And we just started to make work. And it never occurred to me to make a drawing or a model. I had to build everything anyway. Right. So I could only design what I could build. Um, so there was no, I didn't have to explain it to anybody, <laughs> only to myself. So so that's how, yeah. that's how it worked. So I don't, so consequently, I never had much of a, a relationship to models I mm. make models all the time now I can't say I like it I don't I don't really like making models but um, so if you could kind of go from paper to stage without intervening I would but now I've begun to use models to my advantage over the years I've begun to realize actually I'm, I start now I'm designing while I'm making models which is mm. a problem sometimes but I've that's so I've started to use it and, yeah which but I don't have any emotional connection to models. They're just they're just to get from A to B, right. and I don't have any love for them. I don't want to keep them. I don't want to, you know. I just if a chair is useful for another thing, that's all I care about. Right. So, but I thought, you know, in terms of this 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 thing that exists from a previous show, it felt very important. You know, I thought I'd bring in um, a flyer mm. that I created for our very first shunt show, which was called the Ballad of Bobby Francois. And, and yeah, so what can we see here? We've got it's 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 collagey. It's co- it's a collage. It's collage. It's using my my very favourite letter set oh. again because this is probably letter set I've had left over <laughs> from when I was at art college. Because like, I for years and years mm-hmm. I had a big box of like like five A's and like two B's and you know I think we should dedicate this podcast to the cherished memory of the letter set. Exactly, it's <laughs> almost all gone now, but oh. um. Yeah, so you can see lots of cut-out collage and stuff, and uh, this is this is how I how I used to love making art and mm-hmm. drawings, and um, it's a it's deliberately sort of difficult to understand necessarily what, what, the, <laughs> what the piece has got. There's little um, elements from the show. It has a it has an aeroplane where the, the wings are breaking off. It has a a man holding up a sign saying Bobby. It's got a mounted. It's got a rugby team that would look quite South American. It's a, it was about it was about the uh, Uruguayan rugby team who uh, crashed in the Andes in yeah. 1972 and uh, had to uh, survive uh, avalanches and had to cannibalize yes. in order to survive and this was our, our first show and uh, it was uh, an extraordinary extraordinary experience because we had just um, leased an archway in mm. Bethnal Green um, which was our our sort of venue is where we we collaborated to make works, where we invited our audience, um, and we didn't have we hardly had any money. We all used to pay every single month to rent this archway. Oh, you were you were all um, we all putting yeah, in we all put in money. Rent. I mean, oh, wow. I I mean because I came from the background of as a visual artist I was mm. used to renting a studio that's been always been part of right. being an artist is renting a studio but yeah. for the for some of the other members it was it was quite a difficult I think mm. thing to get their head around that they were actually going to have to pay to find a place to make work but that was all part of our ethos was that we'd find a space we'd make work we'd invite an audience to this space and we'd 
get to know an audience and we'd start to nurture an audience and then and that we'd make work that was essentially free yeah and so we'd create this kind of cultural space where the, an audience would come and and see the work and um, none of us were interested in working in a traditional theatre none of us were interested in making traditional work um, were you still at that point not thinking of yourself as someone who was going to be making a career no, in we, theatre well no because I, I, I had been at Central to do this this year long sort of advanced theatre practice where everyone sort of made work in co- kind of companies mm. collectives and I was really interested in this collective collaboration idea um, but even then you know we didn't call ourselves we, we call ourselves shunt events we had, it was a very right. political decision because we didn't want to ha- use the word theatre in the um, in the title because our sort of if we had any artistic policy, which we really didn't, but if we did, it was to explore the live event. That's what we yeah. decided. It was as simple as that, to explore the live event. And very clearly for, for me and, and the others, it was really a hybrid form, like a crossover between the thoughts of theatre and dance and also visual arts, music. People came from so many different backgrounds yeah. who was part of the, coll- the collective. Um, but we really weren't interested in any kind of following any kind of tradition of theatre in, in this country as it was mm. at the point it really was a hybrid form that we really enjoyed um, that we kind of made our own for a bit yeah. and uh, why shunt actually why, where did that name because we were on a railway arch of course of course I mean like let me just tell you David Rosenberg who was the director his he, we went to Edinburgh the year before with the show mm. out of college and he'd called us without telling anybody he'd called the company Stephanie's Fridge <laughs> Stephanie's That's Fridge. That's the sort of thing that could just kill a collective straight exactly. off, we isn't were like, it? What? <laughs> Stephanie's Fridge? That's the most r- rubbish title ever, which I, he would concede was terrible. <laughs> terrible. Anyway, so We I wouldn't think, still be talking about you. No, few, so few I think Louise Murray came up with, a, with Shunt. And it was just directly because we were under the railway. We just wanted yeah. something that was just as simple as that. We're under mm. the railway, we're going to call ourselves Shunt. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of also, quite apart from being a moment of theatre history, it's kind of a moment of urban history isn't it that that moment when spaces like that really quite extensive spaces were up for grabs exactly well I mean I kind of feel we probably even then we were on the end of end Mm. of that time but it was still happening I mean you just can't find spaces like that now you know it's just uh, especially somewhere like Bethnal Green yeah you'd have to you have to go out you know out to London City Airport way to mm-hmm. to find spaces like that now I mean the, the space we had after that was this extraordinary space under London Bridge Station yes. which was accessed by a little door in the tube station basically which was just the was most extraordinary kind of, theatrical entrance to a theatre so ever sort of speakeasy kind of vibe Complete to speakeasy <laughs> and you know and people used to when we were running our show Tropicana there mm. every so often people who were drunk and making their way after home for a boozy night in London Bridge, would stumble in accidentally into into the bar, and they would get in the lift, <laughs> and they would come down, and they would not, they would suddenly be aware they were in this underground place and get very freaked out. But it happened more than two occasions. Oh, really? Yeah. Opened so, the door onto their nightmares, exactly. <laughs> which have been enacted before. What them. the hell is going on? <laughs> um, but yes, but the, but these spaces were a real gift, you know, mm. and. And it was a new model because it was about finding a space and making work in a space and inviting audience to your space mm. um, and redefining what a theatre space could be mm. and therefore really freeing up in our perspective, from our perspective you know, what, what was permissible as yeah. theatre. Like it didn't have to, you know, for, for a long time we were always 
critics in the art in, in dance right. like we couldn't be possibly theatre yeah um, and yeah yeah and presumably there were you know, there were no rules and there was no money it was just all of those things there you were no had to rules make and no and money you just had to yeah you had to be able to if you if you could imagine it and you could make it yeah. then it could go in the show and so it was this um it was this kind of collection of kind of the great the rubbish that the sort of you know it was a great collection of stuff and, and of course all, all the time we were alongside running shows we were running our cabarets which mm. were which grew into the shop lounge which which hundreds of younger artists then came through and yeah. lots of foster, uh, collaborations were fostered and and it was a constant sort of a it, it was it was like a studio an mm. artist studio it was a factory yeah. it was it was a place to it was all about the art mm. and socializing and you know, it was before anyone had kids, and it was yes. like a, you know <laughs> the old days. <laughs> and all that stuff we were talking about right at the beginning of this conversation about the audience, what they get from a piece, how they access it, what they need to to experience or to see or to feel. Presumably, you were working all of that out as you went along in a space that hadn't been designed for any of those kind of conventional ways of, of presenting a theatrical experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just sort of experimenting with different ways in which the audience could be watching, observing, part mm. of, you know, could they be drinking while they were watching? How drunk could they be before mm-hmm. it became a problem? You yeah. know, what if they were sitting over there? I mean, yes, it was a great sort of learning mm. curve. And it just meant when I did start working in, in much more mainstream traditional theatres, I suppose I didn't come with too much sort of baggage or I, I didn't come with, um, what would be a way of saying it, because I hadn't assisted other designers. I, right. I wasn't, I, I didn't really know the rules, I suppose, uh-huh. actually. Yeah. And and so thinking about those those, those two uh, fantastic things you've brought in, the, the uh, Wilkinson Makes Tea as Anne-Marie Opens Biscuits, it's just a phrase I suspect is just going to recur in my nightmares now. <laughs> and the flyer. Um, what have, what, how have those kind of filtered through to the work you're you're making now? Could, would someone who knew you really well be able to say, okay, yeah, that's that's the fine art beginnings. Oh, this is that's very shunned. That. I think that. Well, it's a good question. I'm not sure you'd always be able to see that mm. in the work I do because I do lots of different work. I feel yeah. like I feel like I work across lots of aesthetics. I don't feel mm. I'm one of those designers where you could necessarily go, oh, that's so and so. I do I do work across different aesthetics as I work with different directors. Um, I don't feel like I have to have an aesthetic. I don't feel mm. like there's things I won't do or won't touch. You know, I'll, I'll be I'll always be quite excited actually yeah. if I'm challenged to do something I previously didn't like you know I, I kind of enjoy that that challenge um, I think there's people who know me and uh, who work with me can definitely see the same sort of sense of humor or mm. sense of approach to work um, throughout throughout um, the, the times I've been working but obviously you know I've brought in two sort of still flat images and of course what I would do is I work in yeah. 3D space and, and in durational time so it's quite hard to make a to make a connection between these two things but I suppose you know I I do try and 
work with projects that I mm-hmm. really like or directors who I know are going to have a who are going to have a good conversation with about the work and um, I definitely think there's a sort of sense of irreverence that runs through these two pieces yeah. which is present in everything I do yeah. we should also mention you, you, you told me beforehand that part of um, the appeal of the flyer is that you had strong views strong views oh, yes. on theatre marketing and posting that's right that's right <laughs> so when we started shunt the thing the only thing i really knew about theatre is i go up and down the tube and i'd see these like just awful awful posters advertising theatre which just concreted all my worst thoughts about theatre at the time was like just oh god this is not something I, yeah. who are they appealing to who are they trying to appeal to you know, and, you know, and kind of, and then alongside that, you had this this much more sophisticated visual arts marketing mm. and record sleeves, and you yeah. know, there's a whole tradition of how to sort of package um, package work, yes. you know, in these other mediums. But I, I just felt I felt at the time that theatre just hadn't thought about it, or mm. just hadn't engaged with the fact that the way they market and advertise is part of the work. Yeah, is part of the work. You know, and and I really wanted shunt and the flyers and the way we kind of marketed ourselves mm. to be an extension of the work it's all the work yeah. and so for me it was really important to to find a sort of health style aesthetic um which then we carried on for years mm. which um just which was completely different from <laughs> from others and when we did work at the national little bit and stuff there was there was often a, a real tussle right because they're department always felt like you had to have a face of a certain width in a, of a certain size with a poster and we'd very much sort of try and press against that and stuff and I you know I understand all the reasons for all that but I felt very strongly at the time that I just, we didn't want to have anything to do with the horror that was a uh, theatre advertising I mean I think it's much better now yeah. there is much more imaginative stuff going out there now but at the time I could see that there was no there was complete separation between mm. that side of things and the work being made. And I think, you know, Shunt, to get back to it, was all about the work in a much broader context. Yeah. And the space, the people, the, the marketing, the, the show itself, the bar, that this was all part right. of the experience of theatre. And you could get involved in it all, of yes. course. But I wonder, do you miss the opportunities to, to sort of to meddle, to inform, to, to I do, I do. You know, time discuss. time moves on, of course, and yeah. I, you know, di- you get sort of different concerns, and I'm so busy all the time, just trying to keep up with my workload in a way that mm. I just, at, you know, at some point I had to start to leave all this stuff behind. Yeah. But I feel it it's informed me as an artist, yeah. you know, and I do bring that with me, and I'm still really scathing of. Uh, <laughs> really bad posters that I see on the tube I think no one's going to go and see that right. no, one, no one I know is going to go and see that right. ever <laughs> you're that woman tutting on the platform you're <laughs> an eyebrow arched <laughs> um, okay. before we talk about a sense of place and we kind of go outside as it were can I ask you about um, a very insidey design that you made not long ago that, that people may have seen because it was also one of the uh, the live cinema broadcast events which is Yerma um, which um, played by Lorca 
about a, a woman in great and increasing distress and, when, and set in this fantastic glass box which is quite for such a a raw experience quite a raw passionate play I was at first kind of taken aback by that I think and then thought no actually you kind of you need to contain this pain somehow that's what the box is there for it is a box to hold the pain in how did uh, how how did that design come well I mean I have to you know I have to say that Simon Stone Mm. brought that that was on the table for the beginning of the process he'd worked in a glass similar sort of glass box when he'd done the wild duck Mm -hmm. at the Barbican and um he was very interested in, I mean, his, I mean, his big interest and his big passion is to sort of reclaim these kind of classics and re, you know, rewrite them in a way through a modern, his modern eye. Um, but in particular, he was very interested in the quality of performance, mm. which is much more filmic. He was a film actor, that's his background. He really wanted to get a sort of, a sort of naturalistic type of performance that, that, you, that necessitated a sort of sound. So there's something about, there's a sort of technical sort of um, use of microphones, which then enables, is enabling of a type of performance that he's really, really interested in. Mm. And in actual fact, I would say that for him is the, is, is kind of the most important element of it. The glass is a sort of, is a sort of further device to sort of almost make it cinematic. Mm. So it, I suppose it's a way of exploring a close-up. You know, you can there's a sort of distancing, but it's not really because you can hear it so, so well. Yeah. You can hear it so well that it's so intimate. It's so intimate. And actually the actors, because they're behind the glass, they, they sort of lose some of their awareness of the audience because all they can see is their own reflection. Um, and so... They, they, they're just feeling slightly they, isolated from us. Exactly. And so they also there's also a sort of quality of performance like a zoo animal maybe which is it's all small subtle things but yeah. it all creates this this very different thing so you know so that was there from the beginning and uh, then it was a case of really well how do we work with this box and mm. what can we do with this box and where do we put this box and how do we change things in this box and uh, the changing we have to talk about the changing because i got text from friends who who'd seen it and we we, we were just exchanging capital letters text because you know lowercase would not do for the how did they were there elves were there goblins how the hell did they change that yeah i mean all theater magic it's funny because i because i could really i could always every night hear it happening and i was always like oh god oh god it's so loud that all the audience know what's happening i'm so mortified we didn't but of course because they didn't which is really gratifying to know but um um, and I don't. I never. I didn't actually see the. I haven't seen the NT live. Uh, so I don't know if, right. if you really that really comes across, and the it probably doesn't. But um, but yes. I mean, it was all about you know. There's there's and there's the sort of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning about mm. the sort of pragmatic side of the design as well. Yeah. So there's this wonderful part of the job which is like this kind of like a conundrum or a mm. puzzle. Every job is a puzzle, and um, so here. There's a sort of creative puzzle. It's like, okay, how can you create magic with this box? How do you do magic? Yeah. What are we going to do? How do we make this magic? And how can you? And basically, all you've got is this space with this dimensions, and you've got this box, and you've got these number of people yeah. makes some magic. And that's the kind of like it's a, 
so it's a brilliant conundrum to work out and I, I really enjoy looking at it from that perspective and so it, then it is about it is about the pragmatism of like yeah well you've got this space and you've got that space and so you know and then and these and, things need to happen and these things need to happen that. and yeah. of course Simon is a sort of director who you know he he, he wants to make magic and mm. so he's writing as he goes in during rehearsals so he also and in fact I've worked with him on two other occasions um, since then as well and he's very much part of the process he will work with we'll work together mm. to come up with a sort of design and then he'll write it with the design in mind so he's very very visual so he's very part of that that process he kind of knows knows what he wants as well but then I sort of flesh it out and mm-hmm. and and um and sort of suggest things and you know we'll build on it together but then he will write to what the design will do which is a whole different way of working and yeah. of course gets some really interesting results because you it means you can create magic like that which would be very difficult to do that yeah. from a more traditional starting point of there just being a, a script and mm-hmm. um, the director would have to really be on board with that it would, it would it's, a, it's more like devising in a way yes. and do you, is that something that you particularly love a director with that kind of acute visual sense and, and a visual contribution to make um Yes, but I wouldn't want to do it all the time. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. The more successful I've become in my career, the more I work with these extraordinary directors. Yeah. And not always, but the more extraordinary the directors, the more auteurish they can get. Yeah. And the more they come with a, this is what I want to do. Right. And sometimes that can, you know, the, the flips, I mean, that's all very exciting and brilliant. And mm. I, you know, I, I love it and I, I rise to the occasion. But yeah. but on the flip side of that is is sometimes... You know, when it was when it was less high pressured world and, and, and sort of an echelon down. Yes. You know, I would work with directors who didn't really know what they wanted, and that was also a joy because yeah. then I could I could really be, um, I could really t- sort of take a lead on that. Mm. So, it's it's a different it's it's different challenges. Mm. You know, I'm not saying it's less creative. I mean, still, even if the director comes with a, a set of strong visual ideas, and we're you know, they also want to work with, particularly with me in, mm. in that situation, to, to take it somewhere else, to take it further. But, um, but you know, people like Simon are very clear about... <laughs> they're very clear about what they want. And, you know, I, can, I think I, I couldn't do that all the time, otherwise yeah. I might feel stifled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, we don't want you feeling stifled, so let us step outside the theatre at least in our, in our imaginations, in our mind's eye, because you're going to show me um, some pictures of place, and we're going to try and get these up on the Don Mars uh, Instagram as well. Um, wow. Yeah, these so are, it's not... We're one, not yeah. indoors. We're not indoors, <laughs> we're not indoors. And uh, it's not one space, it's four spaces. So I think we have we've got Sizewell Beach, uh, Dungeness, uh, the Isle of Grain, and Orford Ness. Um, and I'd say they all, they, they're a very much a, a, a much of a muchness, yeah. I would say. There's something about each of them which I, I, I seek out. This is the sort of environment I would seek out that I, I feel very excited by. It, you know, quite exposed landscapes, quite very harsh. harsh, exposed, barren mm. landscape. I mean, really kind of, I find it that, you know, by the sea, I love water. Yeah. I love the barrenness. I love like estuaries and and uh, like sand dunes and desert, like the Dungeness landscape and the mud flat. I love mud flats yeah. and and flatness 
um, you know, it's very very romantic and mysterious. You know, maybe I I think I think makes me think I'm like in great expectation. Um, I really yeah. really respond to that kind of uh, very British sort of um, landscape, yeah. which other people might find really boring, mm-hmm. but I find them extraordinarily atmospheric and evocative. And then, of course, but what all these have in common. And this is what I need as well. <laughs> it's some sort of sort of industrial monstrosity. Yeah. You know, either working or or in in some state of dereliction. They look all look actually a bit abandoned, don't they? The buildings that are they have. That I mean, here. the two the two low ones, the Isle of Grey and Orford Ness. They are sort of abandoned previous military installations and industrial right. installations. Um, and then the two the two others are are working. Um, power stations mm. but you know they the, the working power stations even those have a slight archaic meets sci-fi yes. feel Dungeness is the great sci-fi landscape of I mean Britain, it, isn't it really it? is it's, it's extraordinary I, I just you know anyone who hasn't been there like has to go oh. Underfoot, it's so weird. Underfoot, isn't it? Because it's all this. It's, it's really very good, difficult. It's meant to be. Of... It's meant to be like Britain's only desert. That's <laughs> yes. how I've heard it termed. Yeah. Like, like a, as a sort of biological landscape. But, with but there's this something. Power station kind of but looming it's, it's in the, the power station because and, yeah. I think it's. Um, I'm particularly with the power stations. There's, you know, in size. What you, you, when you're walking on the beach, you just hear a sort of. There's this. There's a heartbeat. There's a beat. A sort of terrifying, yeah. a terrifying beat. There's a story here, mm. you know. There's, a, there's on the one hand, there's the the beauty of nature. On the other hand, there's this sort of imposing industrial structure which is just being plonked there. I mean, all these buildings are sort of just being plonked yes. there. It's like a sort of um, something from another time, another yeah. place. Presumably because of their very remoteness, whereas uh, exactly and, and their lack exactly. of habitation. But it's a sort of terrifying, unknown landscape, and it. It sort of, it, it sort of feels almost fantastical. Um, like you don't know what the story is there, and and you know, like I'm not the sort of person who ever wants to go and sunbathe on the beach. I'd be really bored in ten minutes. You know, I want to, I want to go and find treasure and explore and mm-hmm. and all those places. But I, you know, this would I just find this some incredibly evocative. And again, it goes, you know, I, I find it, I see a link. I. I'm seeing this moment encapsulated, like a moment of, a moment of drama that that that, that could be explained further, or, or maybe we just that's enough. Yeah. Just to know there's some tension between nature and man. Yes. Um, in these images, which are really exciting, um, and it's story again. There's, there's, it's about stories. Mm. There's a story. There's a story here. It's kind of waiting to happen, isn't it? There's it's something really... that's absolutely waiting to happen. It's yeah. very, there's, a, there's a real impending sense. Even in the stuff that's had its day and now is in, on, on the destruction, mm. it's um, it, the sense of history and the sense of what's going to happen. It, 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 and it's like a full circle. I find it very exciting. Yeah. Do you miss that sense of scale that perhaps you had with Shunt, those big subterranean spaces that sense of, of, of being I mean I don't know if you've done anything outside on quite this kind of yeah scale. I, I suppose um I mean, yes yes and no I mean I, I suppose it's just all so different working in these big sta- I mean I work in these mm. big stages but it's very different it's often like a, a proscenium 
or uh, it's just a very different way of looking and stuff. I mean, I, I mean, I what I loved about working with Shud, especially like we made our money machine, mm. is I could create you could create structures and stories within a building. The building itself would yeah. would, would be part of the story. Yeah, and. And that's really liberating and exciting for me that, that, that as an audience, when you, you walk first walk in the space, you're not sure where the the theatre or the art has begun or where the building has finished yeah. or where the architecture and theatre and the marketing. Again, it's this whole holistic yeah. sort of approach. And um, I suppose in a lot of the theatres I work in now, you know, you know you're coming to the theatre and you go to the bar first. And it's mm-hmm. very much a sort of prescribed journey, which is, has its own excitement. So don't get me wrong. I love going to the yeah. cinema for all the reasons I always want to... By Revels, I always you know, I would do the same thing, and I would enjoy that that yes. journey to my and, and seat and, and, and ritual and the ritual exactly. Nice. Yeah. I love that as well. Yeah. But yes, but there's something about the the scale and yeah. the epicness and the emptiness of of these images and this kind of place, which um, and I think I know I can't put those yeah. on the stage. Yeah. You know I can't. So I try, you know, like I, I would try and. You know some of the atmospheres of these things. I'd be interested in trying yes. to explore on the yeah. stage, but I, you could never, I can never put this on stage, and I would, you know, I wouldn't want to try because it would be a dismal failure. <laughs> <laughs> but to, for the feeling, for the for the audience to feel some of that desolation and immensity. Exactly. That that's that's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a constant sort of thing that comes up. You know, we. Like with Katie particularly, you know, whenever something is outside, we always try and put it inside because we both know it's really hard to do outside or we need yeah. to keep trying and sort of, you know, being sort of sometimes more or less successful. But I, you know, I, so I think, yeah, there's the outside world is, is the limit. Can't put that on the stage. Yeah. I wouldn't want to. I think that's a rather beautiful place to stop. So I think we should trudge off <laughs> across the barren landscape into the far distance. Lizzie Clachan, thank you ever so much. Thank that you. That has been a delight. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Donmar on Design podcast series. Visit donmarwarehouse.com to find more podcasts with world-class theatre makers.